Uh, Mike Dash, a journalist, writes, There is an encounter that took place, an encounter of the past and an encounter of the present that all met in one day. It took place in the tropical dust of the 20th of February, 1974, as a breeze died down and the air grew thick with flying insects. Representing the present was a college dropout by the name of Norio Suzuki, 24 years old and clad in a t-shirt, dark blue trousers, socks, and a pair of rubber sandals. He was stooping and making up a pile of twigs and branches, and he was quite unaware that that whole time he was being watched. The past, meanwhile, peered out from the cover of the jungle, wondering if the young man was some sort of a trap. The man gazing from the fringes of the forest had the remnants of an army uniform, and he carried a rifle. At the time of that encounter, he had been hiding in the interior of Lubang Island in the Philippines for almost 30 years, steadfastly continuing to wage a war that had ended with Japan's surrender in Tokyo Bay on the 2nd of September, 1945. The past name, staring out from the fringes of the force, was Hiro Onada. He was an intelligence officer in the Imperial Japanese Army. He was then just shy of his 52nd birthday, and he was about to become famous. Onada had been on Lubang Island since 1944, a few months before the Americans invaded and retook the Philippines. And the last instructions he had received from his immediate superior ordered him to retreat to the interior of the island in the jungle, which was small, and in truth, it was of minimal importance in World War II. And his job was to harass the Allied occupying forces until the Imperial Japanese Army eventually returned. Of course, they didn't. But he was told, you are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand, he was told. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. Until then, so long as you have one soldier, you are to continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give up your life voluntarily. And Onada complied with such determination that he ignored repeated efforts to persuade him to surrender. Leaflet drops, loudspeakers, patrols on the ground, and he continued to take war to the local people there on the island. Over the course of 30 years, he and a dwindling band of companions killed 30 Lubang Islanders and wounded 100 more in a sporadic guerrilla campaign that saw the once mighty imperial army reduced to the assassination of some cows and the occasional uh, harvesting and stealing of rice that was farmed close to the jungle's edge by the villagers. One day there was a firefight with a lot that resulted in the loss of the last of his four men with the local police. And Onada soldiered on alone in this fantasy world. And that shootout proved to be a transformative moment in Onada's life because while the local Filipinos were aware that this Japanese soldier was still living on their island, that there were survivors there, and the government was as well, now with the proof of one of the uh, uh, part of Onada's band who had died, been killed by the police uh, shootout there, Private Kinshiki Kuzuka, Journalists began to write extensively about the holdouts here of this Japanese army on this island of Lubang and began to search for him. 
And it was this press coverage that drew the attention of Norio Suzuki, who had returned from several years of a, of a, of a wandering across Asia in search of other adventures. And he said he was going to go in search of Lieutenant Onada. And he was going to find him. And so it was that day that while he, while Suzuki was bending over, starting a fire in the fringe of the jungle, and Onada was watching him, that Onada came out and confronted this journalist. Onada said, if he had not been wearing socks, I would have shot him, but he had on these thick woolen socks, even though he's wearing sandals, and the islanders would have never done anything so weird. It was that day that it came as he as they discovered each other and met and Suzuki of course spoke perfect Japanese and Onada that they met and walked out of the jungle together that really two stories came to a head didn't they a story of a man living in fantasy and then a story of reality here you know this man was living a story in conflict with the true story that the war was over that things were different now Unless we think how ridiculous this is, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 that Tim just read brings us to confrontation with a reminder that disciples of Jesus are walking in the true good story of God. And they must stay firmly rooted in it. And there is a false narrative out there. There is a false story out there. And Paul gives four reasons why God's good news story is supreme. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to look in verses 6 through 10a this morning, first part of verse 10, and be on the lookout for four reasons why God's good news story is supreme. He says in verse 6, however, howbeit or yet, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect or mature. Yet in the wisdom of this world, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that comes to nothing. Paul is saying we, and so he's actually referring to those who are apostles and prophets, uh, the, 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 the message of, of God and the revelation that they are, they, that they are uh, speaking to the world. And it's here at verse 6 that Paul here who has labored in chapter 118, now through chapter 2, verse 5, that his language in the direction changes. From chapter 118, he has been painting in bright colors. The contrast between the, 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 the black and the, the, the grays of, of the wisdom of the world and the beauty of God's wisdom. And he has exposed the emptiness of man-made and man-centered schemes of salvation and rescue and ways to God. And he has emptied this wisdom of of humanity of, of its value and shown that it may appear attractive, but underneath it's empty. And so his readers may have thought now, well, Paul may not must not be interested in wisdom of any kind. But Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 6, However, however, so this is where the tone of the conversation changes. The the argument makes a decisive turn. And so he's linking what he has already said about wisdom and saying, we have a superior wisdom because this wisdom does not birth out of our brains. This is from God of heaven who is eternal and has created all things. And so. He is ensuring that he is not misunderstood. So when he refers to wisdom here, 
He is not referring to what the Corinthians were so fascinated by, the emptiness here of the fads and the fashions and, 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 and the, and the uh, um, uh, um, uh, themes of the day that were so popular. Rather, he is talking about wisdom that belongs to God. And so he's going to confront the wisdom of the world again, what was fascinating to their culture, to a wisdom that is everlasting. And so, in chapter 2, verse 6, we speak wisdom among them that are mature. So he's talking to those who are mature. Those who have embraced the cross of Jesus Christ as a standard for their lives. Those who, 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 who love the message of the cross and walk in it. Those are the mature. Christians who cherish the message of the cross over against the world's wisdom. He chooses this word mature because it seems to be a word that the Corinthians were excited about. It's a word that they loved and loved to apply it to themselves. And here he's saying, here's what true maturity is. You think of yourselves as mature, but yet in chapter 1 verse 10 he has shown that there's a problem, there's an issue of immaturity in their lives. And this wisdom that I am speaking of is of a radically different kind than that that the world pursues. So he says, we speak wisdom among them that are mature, believers, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes or rulers of this world that comes to nothing. Now this wisdom he's picking up here, you might recognize from chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Jew, uh, to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is a wisdom that he's referred to in verse 30, but of him are you in Christ Jesus who of God is made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's what he's talked about in chapter 2, verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, this wisdom here is Christ crucified, the wisdom of God for the ages, the plan of God to take a crucified Messiah and make that be the way that man can be brought near to God. And so this is the basic thrust of wisdom. Uh, here he's talking about a crucified Messiah, radically different. But he says this is not the wisdom that is popular in the princes of the world or the rulers of this age there. And what he's referring to the rulers of this age are those that the world uh, 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 says is the best they have to offer. Those in, in society who are most influential in the world system. Those who rule the outlook and the values of, of any age. He's referred to them in chapter 1 and verse 20. The wise man, the scholar, the philosopher, the influential, those of noble birth in verse 126. These are the best the world can advance who have a radically different story that they're living by. They oppose the message of the cross. And Paul is saying, why should we side with them as to what is important? Because he says in chapter 2, verse 6, their wisdom comes to nothing. Comes to nothing. Why should we be infatuated with paper heroes? Why should we be infatuated with the passing applause, as one has said, of the dying world? 
Why do we pursue things that end up as a vapor that vanishes? From God's eternal perspective, are significant, are, are not significant. Why are we so caught up in what is simply cotton candy that tastes good and is gone and dissolves? What Paul's talking about in chapter 2, verse 6, of a wisdom that comes to nothing, reminds us of what the psalmist said in Psalm 1, verse 6. That the wicked will perish, and the way of the wicked will perish. They're like the chaff, a husk of something that you peel and toss away the husk, and it blows away in the wind. You see, God has divided world history into really two ages Two ages. There is the present age. And this is a period of history that is characterized in the Bible by human sin and rebellion and despair. And since death and sin have entered the world, when we rebelled in the garden, that has been the present age that the Bible speaks of. But then God brings to light a new age, which he calls the age to come. The time when the one true God will be king over all the world, bringing to an end the rule of all forces that oppose him. And his point is this, that in this present age where we are under condemnation because we have all turned aside and gone our own way, away from God, we are like sheep that have gone astray. That God has has burst into this rebellion of humanity because of his love. He He has given terms of peace. And this age to come has broken in in Jesus the Messiah. His death and resurrection break into this present age. They form a break. And now that tune that was played in a minor key with the present age is now brought into a beautiful harmony that's presented to all who will believe. And so that's why Paul is saying the present age and its ruler do not understand this wisdom. I've watched every single episode of the Andy Griffith show. How many of you have done that? All right, so I'm not the only one. So I have a few people who have seen it. Um, And you all remember the episode where Barney is in the chorus. Some of you already know what I'm talking about, right? And there is one voice in the chorus that is off-key, and Barney can't figure out who that is. And so he's going around into the chorus and trying to listen and find out who that one voice is that's off-key. And of course, it's Barney the whole time. He's the one who's off-key. He can't recognize it. And friends, the present evil age is still playing the tune in the old key that they've played since Adam. But the notes of the gospel where Christ has burst in, in the new age, the new wisdom, they're incompatible. They don't fit together. And the old key is going to pass away. But the beautiful music of the gospel is flowing in. But there are people who will be blind to that and will refuse it. That's what Paul's saying in chapter 2 and verse 6. They don't even realize what's going on. So first of all, what I want you to see this morning is that God's good news story is supreme because it outlasts all others. 
And when I speak of God's good news story, what I'm saying is that God's big story from Genesis to Revelation that he has woven throughout Scripture that culminates in the appearance of God in flesh because of our sin, because of our sin that has been a barrier to walk with God, a barrier to have fellowship with God, which is what he created us for. He created us for his glory, to enjoy him, to display who he is to um, uh, to the world, to to fill the earth with those who are who are going to continue bearing his image is how the bible terminology uses it and god has 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 taken uh, himself and he has in spite of our rebellion in spite of our sin against god he has inserted himself as a human being into humanity through the person of jesus of nazareth an historical event and jesus of nazareth was born Perfectly righteous, perfectly good, never went astray from God, always fulfilling God's purposes to the fullest extent of loving God fully with all his heart, soul and mind and loving his neighbor as God intended. And Jesus Christ, in a sense, breaks in, he intrudes into this broken world and he lives the life that you and I could not live. He lives a perfect life. And then the rulers of this age, who Paul's bringing up in 1 Corinthians 2, they crucify him on the cross because they can't believe that he is the one true God, the king who God has sent. And he's crucified on the cross in shame and guilt. And the Bible interprets that event to tell us that Jesus died on the cross, not simply at the hands of Roman rulers, but it was God's judgment on sin and Jesus Christ dies and bears the sin debt of all the world upon him and there in the in the um in in the, in the beauty of Jesus Christ the one who was supposed to be the king of the ages who now is killed on in shame on a cross he rises again and proves that his payment is accepted and that's what we're talking about when we say God's good news story and it means this that Jesus Christ now is has is, is come with terms of peace. And he is inviting all of humanity to turn to God through what Jesus has done on the cross, living a life that you and I could not live, dying the death that you and I deserve to die because of our rebellion against God. And he's saying, come, be reconciled to God. Be connected to God through me. And Jesus Christ's hands reach heaven and they reach earth and he bridges the gap between God and man to bring us to God. And Jesus Christ will return one day. He will judge the world as it is meant to be judged and will make all things right with it. And evil can't get away with it. And so so we're saying God's good news story, that's what we're talking about. And we're saying it is supreme because it outlasts all the others. Man's grand inventions, his biggest schemes, his ways to get to God... Through all the various religions, all those founders have died and you can go see their graves. Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead and he proves to be the plan that outlasts all the others. But secondly, I'd like you to know in verse 7 that God's good news story is supreme because it outplanned all the others. It outplanned all the others. Look in verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. In a veiled manner, a, 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 a hidden truth. 
even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained or predetermined before the world to our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what Paul is saying here is God's good news story is supreme because it outplanned all the others. And there are four ways he shows this. First of all, he describes wisdom as a mystery, as a mystery. So wisdom, again, the crucified Messiah is a mystery, was a mystery. And here's what he means by that. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, please. Ephesians 3, Paul is describing his role in God's big plan. Paul's role himself. And he says this in Ephesians 3, verse 2. If you have heard of the dispensation or the stewardship of the grace of God, which is given to me, to you, how that by revelation, by revealing, he made known to me the mystery, the hidden truth, as I wrote before in few words. Whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ. In other words, Paul has been revealed something by God that before was not previously revealed. In verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And he goes and unpacks that mystery and says that through Christ, there is a church that God has established, bringing Jews and Gentiles together, Jews and non-Jews together. So first of all, I want you to see here that this good news story that is supreme because it outplanned all others, first is a mystery. It was a mystery. Go with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. In verse 25, Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you, to strengthen you, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, is made known, displayed, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. This wisdom was something that was previously concealed. The Old Testament scriptures were all the Jews have had, and God had clearly said in those Old Testament scriptures there would be a Messiah, and Isaiah 53 says he's going to be crucified, but they understood that Messiah to only be a king who would reign, and they didn't understand that a king, Messiah would come and deliver them from their troubles, would be one who would be crucified. That didn't make sense and fit with the story, and it was confusing to them. And in fact, even after Jesus rises from the dead, he's walking, he's meeting with people in Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 23, and they're still scratching their heads heads and saying, I don't even know what happened. And and then there is a decisive moment where Jesus is walking with them, and it says, and he opened their eyes. Through going through the law and the Psalms and the prophets of who Jesus was, it clicked. He had spoken to them. He had told them all these things ahead of time. But there was a time when his grace broke through and their eyes were open and they clicked and they understood it. And that's what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
We speak the wisdom of God and a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world to our glory, that it has now been revealed to the apostles and prophets, and it is their job to proclaim it. And so we are standing today, 2,000 years later, because of a lake of chain links, all along because someone shared the mystery of God that has been now revealed. So this wisdom was a mystery. But secondly, to clarify this phrase in mystery, it is God's wisdom, salvation through a crucified Messiah that was hidden. This this information uh, was hidden uh, before time began. So it's been hidden. It's all been part of God's eternal plan. But now, Paul says, he is revealing it. And thirdly, this secret wisdom, this mystery that was long hidden, and by the way, still hidden to some, or blind to it, it was, in Paul's words here, ordained or destined by God himself for our glory before time began. In other words, what God determined before the ages has been worked out now in, remember we talked about the present age and this coming age. God has broken into the present age and he has shown us that this is what God has planned all along. And the result of this plan is that there will be many who will be brought to God's glory. In the garden, in Adam, in our sin, we were, we were, we were ruined. We were, we were shambles. We were tarnished. We were tainted. We were, we were corrupt. The glory of God as being image bearers had been shrunken and had been distorted. But now through the crucified Messiah, we are able now to have the glory of God shine again from us because Jesus living inside of us. That's what Paul's saying here. God's wisdom, the plan of God for the nations has now been revealed And God has an active role here. In verse 7, he has ordained this before the world to our glory. Don't pass over those three words too quickly. To our glory, which means to our honor, to what sets us apart. That God now is sharing his glory with us. That he is bringing many sons to glory. In other words, that there will come a day when the work of Christ will bring us fully home to God. Yes, we're in a right relationship by Him if we put our trust in the crucified Messiah. But there is coming a day that that we call it uh, uh, the day of glorification. When we are fully like Jesus Christ in all His beauty. And He has brought us to that. And this has always been God's plan. God's plan is not to get converts. That's part of it. That's not the plan. God's plan is to convert ruined sinners to the beauty of Jesus Christ. And He will fulfill that. He will finish that. And so for our glory here is referring to the final goal of salvation. That God's people can share in His glory. And He's inviting the nations into this. And so this crucified one, look how he refers to him in verse 8. Which none of the princes of this world knew, none of the rulers, none of the best the world had to offer knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This crucified one is the Lord of glory. 
And what he is saying is we will one day share in the very glory of God. And the, the very glory of God is the crucified Messiah, the risen Messiah now, who is the glory of God. The brightness of what is beautiful about him will be shared with us. The radiance of what is the image of God in Jesus Christ is shared with us. And so that's the third thing about this wisdom. Being outplanned. Outplanning all others. But fourthly, he points out in verse 8, beginning of verse 8, that God's wisdom is something that none of the rulers of this age understood. In other words... The social powers that crucified Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago were in fact unwittingly thinking, all the time thinking they are stamping out God's plan so that their false story, their false narrative can reign. They are unwittingly carrying out God's purposes. In Acts chapter 4, when the early church meets some, some, some friction, some, some persecution here through their proclamation of this risen Jesus, in Acts 4, 27 and 28, they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They thought they were doing away with a messianic pretender. Okay, here's another Messiah on the scene here. Let's take him out. But he was the true Messiah. He was the one true God in Jesus Christ. And what they were doing was illegally and immorally executing the Lord of glory. And they thought they were so wise, so politically astute, that by their folly, by their foolishness, they brought to pass what God intended all along to happen. The very plan that they are dismissing as foolishness, they were a cog in that wheel that God uses. They killed the Lord of life. And so the irony is this. The very ones who Paul can look back and say, they tried to do away with Jesus by crucifying were in fact carrying out God's purposes and bringing hope to the world. So friends, that tells us that God's good news story is supreme because it outplanned all the others. They thought they took out the pretender. But Jesus is a Lord of glory. Thirdly, God's good news story is supreme because it outgives all the others. It outgives all the others. Look at this. He says in verse 9, now he's going to quote scripture from from a compilation of probably some places in the Old Testament, but maybe primarily Isaiah 64 verse 4. And sometimes this is a verse that you hear read at funerals, but that's not what this is talking about. This verse is not talking about the future glories of heaven that that our eyes and our ears can't imagine. What it's talking about is the blindness of our eyes and our heart and God using something like the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in order to bring glory into the world. That's what this verse is talking about. So he says, but as it is written... So standing on Scripture, Paul says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. 
And what he's saying is God's good news story is supreme because it seemed like Jesus Christ in that tomb that the enemy was victorious. But when Jesus Christ comes out of the tomb, he gives us more than we could even imagine. So when Paul quotes from primarily Isaiah 64, verse 4, that verse in Isaiah is referring to Israel in captivity. And they're awaiting God's deliverance. And the nation had sinned, and they had been sent to Babylon for, um, for, for, for punishment, modern-day Iraq. And they cry out to God that God will come and deliver them. And he answers their prayer 70 years later after their exile. And he's showing them that, yes, I have plans for my people, and you do not have to be afraid. And Paul takes that verse, and he applies it to the church, and he says, our future in Jesus Christ is so secure that no matter what the uh, the evil hearts of evil men intend and the circumstances they may place us in, God's plans are so wonderful that our minds cannot even begin to conceive of it. And God has ordained this for His glory all the way from earth to heaven. Why does this matter in this passage? Remember what these Corinthians are facing? They're facing a temptation to be really proud about themselves. They're facing a temptation to uh, live in an arrogant lifestyle um, that... They're even attaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to it, but the, the gospel is not the core of their lives. And so they are living in a way where Jesus is just a part of their life, and he is not the center of their life. In fact, what is the center of their life is their own egos, because they're going to describe themselves as, I'm of this group, I'm of this teacher, this is my favorite guy, or this is, this is who I identify with. And what they have not identified with is the cross of Jesus Christ that had, that had so mercifully been extended to them, that had brought them out of a, a, a world and society where, where you were ranked according to your status, and, and Paul says, I took you guys, the gospel took you guys who are on the bottom rung of status and brought you into a status that is an eternal status. You've forgotten that. And then he is now describing to them that the very thing that brought them out of sin is what the world calls foolishness, but it is wise, it is God's wisdom. And he's bringing them down to where they need to be to remind themselves of of the humility that needs to be a part of the Christian life as followers of Jesus Christ. But they need to see that they are part of God's vast, eternal plan. They had forgotten the cost of their salvation. They had forgotten the whole purpose of their life, that this message centers in the death of Christ. It's part of God's plan. They had gotten their eyes at the cross. They were involved in minor matters. They were living according to the false story of the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's going to say, I can only spoon, uh, spoon feed you because you weren't ready to take what you needed to take. In chapter 4, he's going to have to defend the fact that he is one of these people, an apostle who is called by God to deliver the mystery of this gospel to them. In chapter 5, they're tolerating immorality in the church. In chapter 6, they're bringing each other to law, to, to the courts of law and suing each other. They're living according to this false story of the world that exalts me and exalts self. And the gospel is you must come and die with God. You must come and die with Jesus so that you may find life with Him. 
And here they are trying to uh, 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 live a life that exalts themselves and, and puffs themselves up and boasts in their own abilities and, and, and ostracizes people and realize and forget that the ground has been leveled at the cross. And they're living by the false story. And it's a real temptation for each one of us, isn't it? There's a constant drumbeat, isn't there? The world says you need to step in line. I mean, you 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 can you 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 can survey just about every meet every movie, right? Every every song, uh, every uh, 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 quote, every everything that the world tries to put out there for you, and it's pushing you into this mold, and the mold is this. You are supreme. You create your own destiny. You create your world. Everybody else is just a peg on the ladder that you climb on top of. And the gospel says, no, you must come and die. You must be crucified. Because that is how your Savior lived. Your Savior was crucified. You must come and die with Him. Your old man must die. He must come and live and have Christ live through you. In chapter 7, they're confused about marriage. They're confused about sexuality. In chapter 8, they're not loving their own brothers and sisters. And they're just trampling on them. In chapter 11 through 14, even in their gatherings together, They're putting down the poor and they're not feeding the poor amongst their own midst because they're living again in a self-promoting worldly wisdom. And so this is why Paul spends four chapters, these first four chapters on the gospel of Jesus Christ and how to walk in line with the gospel. In chapter 15, they don't even think the resurrection is that important. And in chapter 16, there's some leaders that Paul has committed that, that he said these would be good leaders over you that they're pushing off to the side. And friends, God's good news story is supreme because it outgives whatever the world has to offer. The world puts, portrays and puts things in front of us on a stick and says, you know, this, this, this is, this is going to give you fulfillment. This is going to give you happiness. And inside is, it's just, it's rotten. It's no good. It looks good on the outside. It looks like you know, beauty and, and, and smells good and, and tastes good at the outset, but it's bitter when you eat it. And Paul is telling these Corinthians that God's good news story is supreme because it outgives all others. In fact, in Romans 8, he'll say, God can't give you any more than he gave you in giving him his only son. And God is good all the time. And if you look other places for goodness, you're never going to find it. But live in this true story, God's good news, gospel story. Fourthly, he says in verse 10, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. Actually, in the original language that Paul wrote this in Greek, it's to us. God has delivered this to you by the Spirit. 
So to us, it's an emphasis here. It's not the learned philosophers. It's not the best society has to offer. It's not the brightest. It's not the most flashy. But it is people who humble themselves under God's truth, submit to God's truth, that these truths about the cross and God's good news story that is supreme have been revealed. Therefore, there can be no feeling of pride when it's clear that it's from God and not me. You and I, because we are in Christ, can claim no special skill or insight that's from us. Only that God has revealed these to us through His Spirit. What is Paul saying? He's saying, believers have open access to God's mind. You're wondering what I mean by that. I mean this. This is God's mind. This is what distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. The mature from the people of this age and the rulers of this age. Friends, if we see the truth of the gospel, it has nothing to do with our brilliance or insight. It's because of God's grace, the Spirit of God. And friends, if we can rejoice in the gift of, of God's Son, and we should, we should express no less gratitude to God for the gift of His Holy Spirit, which enables us to grasp the message of His Son. And so what Paul is telling these Corinthians is this, and you'll see this in the following verses next week, is that Christianity is not simply a set of beliefs like your driver's handbook. It's not a rule book for life, ultimately, though it has rules. It's not anything you could spend a weekend mastering. It is multifaceted. It is full of beauty. It is full of mystery. It's full of power. There are terrifying things in it. There are wonderful things about it. There is always much, much more to learn, to relish, to delight in. And so God's wisdom is superior. We'll never grow out of it. And it is a very vehicle that we are to sail along in in our Christian lives. And when we get out of the vehicle, if we get out of the boat of God's story, you're stepping into water that you're going to drown in. And it is where we must live and where, where we must dwell, the beauties of Christ in our lives. We're going to talk about that a little bit more tonight on being fluid in the gospel, making sure we're dwelling in the gospel. But the second thing is this. That God's message from the very beginning challenges the world of power, doesn't it? Social, political power. Because God's kingdom is a superior kingdom. And it has been revealed and unveiled in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so Paul does not want these Corinthians to imagine he's simply talking about a nice spiritual experience that you had at one time. But this is the, this is the path that you must walk and live on. He doesn't want them to think that, uh, 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 the gospel allows the world's power games throughout the centuries to proceed without a challenge. That all the rulers of this world will come to nothing one day. And Jesus Christ will stand in judgment over the world as victorious. And who is on the Lord's side? Friends, the Word of God and His revealed message to us is different 
from what's flashy and what's trendy in this world, isn't it? That's going nowhere. God's going somewhere. And He's shown us where it is and how to get there. No, His wisdom has been hidden. It has been secret. But He has planted His wisdom would be revealed and it would bring heavenly glory. And none of the rulers understood this wisdom. If they had, they wouldn't have nailed the Lord of glory to the cross because it's written that no one, no one's been able to understand or hear or see what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has shown it to us through His Spirit. And you can rejoice today in that. And you can direct your eyes off the things of this earth, off the floor here that is so empty, and you can turn your eyes to greater and more beautiful and precious things that will not just last for five seconds or a day or a week or a year, but for eternity. And so his bid here is come and die with Christ so that you live with him. Cast the sinful, rebellious, prideful, selfish you on the cross of Jesus Christ. Trust He gives a new life of peace with God that lives in full love for Him and others and receive that. And hand over the rule of your life to the true Master because He takes you to new life. And that's the message of 1 Corinthians 2, 6-10. through 10. Are you living in a false story like the man we brought attention to at the beginning? Listen, Jesus offers so much more. But friends, Jesus' terms here are you must die. Your lusts, your desires for self-exaltation must die. Your self-centeredness must meet face-to-face with the cross. Your pride must be dragged kicking and screaming to Jesus and handed to Him. And friends, if we're going to grow as a church, if we're going to increase our base of witness if we're going to testify to the reality of the power of God in us, it will only happen when we come and die and Christ reigns in us. Let's pray.